Good morning, everyone. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, please. We're going to be in verses 17 through 38 today. We're talking about godly leadership, biblical leadership today, and it's important to everyone, is it not? Leadership is important, and it is essential to life. Uh, if you're a kid or you remember being a kid, uh, you remember playing follow the leader, you know, someone leads and everyone else follows. Uh, well, if you're an adult, you know that in nine days we'll be choosing new leaders for our country. What we see in this passage is a beautiful portrait of a servant shepherd's heart, biblical leadership. Go ahead and stand up. We're going to read God's word. Uh, Paul's life and ministry is on display here. You see the ministry of the Ephesian elders on display. And what you also see is the kind of life and ministry that we ought to be aspiring to have. So we're standing for the word of God. We're going to read that first. I'm going to read Acts 20, verses 17 to 38. Just remind you that this is the living and abiding and perfect word of God. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is inspired by God. It, it is words of life, and it points us to Jesus, the only anchor for our souls. Let's remember that as, we, as I read Acts 20, beginning at verse 17. This is the word of God. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone out proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you, that by working hard in this way, 
we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you use your word in our lives. Lord, by your spirit, have your way in our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We're talking about godly biblical leadership here, and what we see very clearly is that God cares about leadership. There's a high standard for godly leadership in Scripture. There's a high calling, and it leads to great joy. 1 Timothy 3.1 says, Elders who rule well are deserving of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. But there is also great judgment. James 3.1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, because as such we shall incur a stricter condemnation. Just sobering aspect to leadership. But a church's health is directly connected to the presence or absence of biblical leadership. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, the things that you have heard and seen from me, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There was to be a succession of biblical leadership in the church. There was to be a continuous, a continuous process where new leaders were being developed and appointed. Now, if you want to know what the Holy Spirit wanted elders in the first century to know about leadership, then look no further than Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. What we have here is a, a beautiful picture, a portrait really, of godly leadership in the life of a servant shepherd, namely Paul, and then also in the lives of these Ephesian elders. Here was Paul, an elder who had discipled these elders to shepherd God's flock. The last time we were in Acts, just two weeks ago, we saw Paul loving the church. We saw Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. We saw Paul loving the church through encouragement and through giving and through fellowship and through teaching. Those who truly love Jesus will love his church. They will love other believers and they will desire true fellowship with them. And now what we see Paul doing is loving the church through its leadership. Loving the church through its leadership. We, we see Paul's life and ministry amongst the Ephesians. We see the Ephesian elders' life and ministry. They're, they're servant shepherds. What I see in this passage, and we want to bring out, is this, the heart of a servant shepherd. What we see in this passage are really some focuses that a servant shepherd will have and needs to have if they're going to serve and serve Jesus and serve the church. They're reflected in Paul's words to these Ephesian elders when he was at Miletus. He meets with these elders. He, he asks them to come to him because he wants to encourage them. Luke is present. It's the only time thus far that in the book of Acts where Luke is present when he is recording or 
a message. We see in chapter 21, verse 1, that he says, when we parted from them and set sail. So he is writing as an eyewitness to this event, probably from memory, maybe from jotting a few things down. And it's a very unique message that Paul gives to these elders. It's the only time in the book of Acts where you see Paul speaking explicitly to a Christian group. He's speaking to a group of elders. And he covers really in brief much of what he says in the epistles. It's really a summary that Luke is giving. Luke is giving us the highlights of Paul's message to these elders. And what you'll find, and as I was reading it, you might have seen some parallels if you're familiar with Paul's writings. There are, there are parallel statements Paul makes in his letters. There are parallel themes. So you could see this message as a sampler of Paul. A sampler of Paul. What he is giving these elders is a charge, a reminder. I think it was Eugene Peterson who said that preaching is a ministry of reminding. He is reminding them of what they knew. He's reminding them of what they shouldn't forget. And it's basic to any kind of biblical ministry in the church, a ministry of reminding. These elders, he's telling these elders, because of the dangers, because of the cost, they must function as true shepherds of the sheep, entrusted to their care by the Holy Spirit himself. They want to serve Jesus by shepherding God's flock, and as such, we'll look at these focuses that Paul is, is really pointing out. I want you to first look at verses 17 through 19, because there you see the first focus of a servant shepherd. It is a consistent life and ministry. A consistent life and ministry. Verse 17 says that from Miletus, he sends word to the elders at Ephesus, some 30 miles away. He asks them to come to him. Would have taken two days to get word to Ephesus, two more days for them to get to Miletus. And he comes and asks for the elders to come, and he calls them elders. There's three terms, by the way, three words in this passage that describe the same role, the same person. First, it's elders. Then down in verse 28, you see overseers. Then down in verse 28, you also see shepherd, which your Bible might say care for. It's the Greek word poimen, which means shepherd or pastor. But he has the elders come to him. The Greek word is presbyteroi, and it means um, a, a spiritually mature man. Presbyteroi is where we get our, our English word Presbyterian. And what it highlights is the spiritual character of these spiritual mature men. Then down in verse 28, overseers, that's the Greek word episkopoi, it's where we get our word episcopal, and it highlights their function, their, their duty, their role, they're to lead by example. So the elders were to be spiritually mature men who led by example. And then also down in verse 28, you see the term shepherd, pastor, and that shows their responsibility. They were responsible to, to teach, to feed the flock. So you have elders who are to be spiritually mature men who lead by example and feed the flock and teach them the word of God. Now, these elders from Ephesus, they had been appointed by Paul. You see, it's a plurality. It's not one elder coming to meet with him. It's the elders, a plurality of godly men. On down in the passage, you see a plurality of ungodly people that will come and attack the church. He calls them savage wolves. Not just one wolf, 
but a plurality for evil. Here you have a plurality for good, and they have been discipled by Paul. Titus 1.5, he says, appoint elders in every city. What you'll notice about becoming an elder in a church is it's not something that a person lobbies for. You don't campaign for it. There's a lot of campaigns going on right now, right? It's something that people in the church recognize. You don't have to point it out to them. You don't have to politic for it. You don't put out signs and take ads out and say, you know, vote for me for elder. The church recognizes it and comes knocking at your door which is very good timing, by the way, for us who make up Grace Church of Orange because we have just gone through this annual process of, of um, nominating people to serve as elders and deacons. And I hope you didn't miss it. It was three weeks in a row. And here's what we said on the sheet that we gave out. Prayerfully consider who God may have gifted and called to serve Grace Church in one of these servant leader positions. And we ask you to look in the Bible. 1 Timothy 3. Titus chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 5. Look at the qualifications and prayerfully consider who you think fits. And you'll notice the wording is specifically chosen because of what the Bible teaches. Consider prayerfully who God may have gifted and called to serve in one of these servant leader positions. The idea here is that God chooses and calls leaders. We discern and discover who he's chosen and called. That's the idea. So these elders come to Paul, verse 18, and he starts right in. He says, you know. He's reminding them about his life and his ministry that were consistent. You know how I lived among you from the first day I set foot there. His, his life was consistent all the time. Now, every elder I've ever known would say, I'm off the list then because my life is not consistent all the time. My wife will tell you that. My kids will tell you that. My friends will tell you this. This is what he was aspiring to. This is what we ought to aspire to, a consistent life. He tells them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, as he's making a defense of his ministry because people had accused him of a lot of things, he says, you yourselves know, he's reminding them again, you yourselves know, brothers, our coming to you was not in vain. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, and you are witnesses, and so is God. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Paul's saying, you know me, you trust me, it's, I, my life has been an open book before you. They had observed him up close and personal for three years. So verse 19, he tells how he, how he lived and served. He says he served the Lord, that's serving Jesus, with all humility and tears and trials. Now, isn't it easy to think of Paul as this type A you know, driver personality that just bowls people over? This gives us a unique perspective into Paul's heart. He served Jesus with all humility and with tears and with trials. He served the Lord. He uses a Greek word, doulos. It means bond servant. It means slave. He's saying, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. It's a word Paul uses 17 times in his letters. It's one of his favorite titles for himself. I'm a, a servant of Jesus. I'm a bond slave of Christ. I'm a slave of his. Now, this word mainly refers to obeying Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
You can't go around saying, I'm a bondservant of Jesus and then be disobeying Jesus in your life. The idea is if you call yourself a bondservant of Christ, a slave of Christ, then you are saying, I am obeying Jesus Christ in my life. And by the way, slaves of Christ are marked by two things as we note here, humility and suffering. Paul was humble. He says, I served Jesus with all humility. Now back then, humility was not a trait that you would want to copy. It was seen as a sign of weakness. It was not something in those days that was seen as a, a, a virtue to emulate. But Paul doesn't care what the world thinks, neither should we. He embraces a servant model of leadership that he got from the Lord Jesus himself. What did Jesus say about himself? Matthew chapter 11. He says, I am gentle and humble in heart. This is how we ought to be as well. He was humble, and then he suffered for Jesus in the gospel. He willingly suffered for Jesus in the gospel. He had severe tests coming at him. He had plots coming at him. Fresh in his mind would have been the idea that he couldn't even take a boat directly from the port of Corinth to Syria precisely because there was a plot by the Jews against his life. He, this is his life as a believer. He faced violent outbursts against him in most of the cities he went to preach the gospel. So he was humble, he willingly suffered, and he's telling a group of people all about what they already knew about him. He's talking to a group of people whom he dearly loves. He is recounting to them what his life and ministry were like. He is biographically recounting to them and pointing them to the same kind of ministry in life and essentially pointing us to the same kind of life and ministry. You look on down into verse 31, and what you see is that a second time, Paul says, I served with many tears. This doesn't mean that Paul is a crybaby, by the way, that you know, he just couldn't keep his emotions in. This means that he was a tender-hearted servant shepherd who had a huge capacity to love and care for the body of Christ. He was, as 1 Thessalonians 2 says, gentle among them, like a nursing mother caring for her own children. They were ready, willing to share not only the gospel, but their very lives, because the, the church was so dear to them. And he wasn't afraid to, like a father with his children, to exhort and encourage and charge them to walk in a manner that is pleasing to God. This is the heart of Paul's ministry. By the grace of God, I've been able to serve at three churches over the last 31 years in ministry, and, and I'm, I, this is what I aim to be like. That, that's my model, and I do it very imperfectly, but, but that was the heart of Paul. He had developed a, an affection for the believers. He was deeply grieved when they fell into sin. He was deeply grieved when they were fooled by false teaching, but he had a consistent life and ministry that he could actually say, you know, you know about this. Let's think about your life and ministry for a moment. This has got to be somewhat introspective because we can't just say, well, that's what Paul was like and that's what those elders were like, but you know, I'm not an elder in the church or whatever, and you say, I, this, I'm just exempt. This is for us too, for all of us. Let's just say you 
You're serving Jesus in your life. You say, I'm serving Jesus. The question for you is, is it, a, is it a doxology of praise as you go through your life? Are you basically saying, I'm serving Jesus and I'm gonna follow him in obedience. I'm a bond servant of Christ. I'm a slave of Christ, so I'm obeying Jesus. Let's just say that you are you're teaching. You have an opportunity to teach. Maybe you're an Awana leader or a Sunday school leader. And aren't they awesome, by the way? Are they awesome? Oh, yeah. Or a nursery worker, an Awana leader, a Sunday school teacher, or you're working with youth, or you're leading the Bible study for adults, and you're in a ministry. You've got a teaching ministry. And by the way, hold that thought. Let's say you say, well, I don't have a teaching ministry. Well, let me say, let me say this. If you live in a household, if you live in a household with people in it, then you ought to, and you're a Christian, you ought to have a teaching ministry amongst that household. Maybe you live with your spouse. Maybe you live with your spouse and your kids. Maybe you live with your parents. Whatever it is, you should be opening up the Bible together on a daily basis. You know I'm all about this, right? We need to open up the Bible and, and, and read the word and pray together as households. So don't say, hey, I don't have a ministry. You might, be, you might be neglecting your ministry, but you have one that you should be fulfilling. But let's just say you're doing all this, but you say, let's say as a Sunday school teacher, well, I have got to go do my duty today. Oh, I just, oh, it's a burden. It's a, I, why did I say yes? Oh, I'm just, I'm serving the church. You might even say, I've served the church for so long and no one is saying any thanks. Here's where you need to, 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 to shift. Paul said, I'm serving the Lord. So the idea is that you are in the church, but you are not serving for the church. You're serving for Jesus. Are you with me, right? He is your overseer. He is your chief shepherd. And, and you want to then, then serve and teach as if you're serving and teaching as unto him, for him. Let's talk about your work. Tomorrow morning, many of you are gonna go to offices where, by the way, they are paying you to be a, a, a servant of Jesus. Is that awesome or what? Is this awesome? This deserves applause. Your, your company, your, your, the firm you work for, the, the organization you work for, is paying you to be a Christian in the workplace. Pretty cool. Very, very awesome. Um, and, and Ephesians 6.5 says, servants obey your masters. Literally, uh, workers obey your boss. Be, be a good servant of Jesus as you do your job to the best of your ability. In Christ's strength and for his glory. Amen on that? Would you like to do that tomorrow morning? That's what you're gonna do, right? And, and the idea is that every moment of your life, waking to sleeping ought to be for Jesus. Now we realize that we're not as consistent as that. But here's where we get in trouble. We say, well, we've got the sacred and secular dichotomy. There is no sacred, secular dichotomy for a believer. That's for unbelievers. They slice and dice their life up. But you, as a believer, you are a servant of Christ, a bondservant, a slave of Christ, wherever you go. You want a consistent life in ministry. You want to be humble. There will be tears. There will be trials. Paul said to Timothy, pay close attention to your life and to your teaching, to your private life and to your public ministry. Pay close attention to that. They should not contradict one another. So ask yourself this. 
you're in a church, you're in, the, you're in a church, you're a, you're a professing believer. Can people in the church say, yes, we know that person? We know that person, not merely by observation or by outward appearance, but they actually know the real you. Who knows the real you? And not just by what you say, but by what you do. That's the kind of life and ministry that Paul is pointing to. Let's move on. Verses 20 to 27, we're going to see a, a second focus. Not just a consistent life and ministry, which is an overarching kind of thing, but as you're doing that, a dependent teaching and preaching. Dependent teaching and preaching. And now we see two awesome bookmarks, verse 20, verse 27, where Paul uses the same words. He says, I did not shrink. Verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the full counsel of God. And the idea is he didn't hold back the truth. That's what it means to not shrink. He didn't hold anything back. He didn't withhold anything that was necessary, anything that was needed. He had a fearless proclamation. He said, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out, literally inspired by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, not always comfortable there, reproof, for correction, not always easy, and for training in righteousness. He says, I did this publicly, the Ephesians would have spent many hours learning from Paul in Tyrannus Hall. And then he said, I did it from house to house. The church had a network of house churches, like our home groups. He says in verse 21, I was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks. And he was calling them very specifically to something. Number one, he was calling them to repentance towards God. Repentance is a big idea in the Christian life. It is a change of your mind that is reflected in your actions. If you say, I, I repented, it means you changed your mind about your sin and then you lived differently as a result. It's a deliberate act on your part of turning to God from your sin to have forgiveness in Christ. It is a gracious gift of God. Repentance is a gracious gift that God grants to those he has chosen. He grants it. His merciful kindness leads us to repentance. One 19th century theologian called repentance a gracious power. A gracious power bestowed only on the elect by which they lay aside the life of sin and busy themselves with righteousness. I hope you are busying yourself with righteousness. Paul didn't just talk to them about repentance towards God. He also spoke with them about faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, sinners not only need to turn from their sin, they need to turn to God in faith. Hear the gospel, you know the truth, you agree with the truth, you trust Jesus. Some of you might be saying, I didn't do that. 
I've just been here a long time. No, you need to hear the gospel, know the truth, agree with the truth, and trust Jesus. You need to know that God is holy and that mankind is sinful and that Christ is the only Savior. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And then you turn in repentance and faith, you turn from your sins and you turn to Jesus by faith. In those days, many Jews were refusing the gospel. They were refuting it. They were saying, no, we don't want that. A lot of people do that today, right? Paul wrestled with this idea in Romans 9, 10, and 11. By the way, Romans was written mere months before this scene in Miletus, where he is saying God chooses and God opens hearts to the gospel, this whole process of making the dead to live. And Paul goes on, verse 22, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm constrained by the Spirit. He uses a a, a big figure of speech where it's literally I'm chained by the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm literally a prisoner of the Holy Spirit in this. It's the same words used in chapter 22, verse 29, where he is chained when he's taken custody by those in Jerusalem, by the Romans. And the idea is he's saying I am literally chained up like a prisoner by the Holy Spirit. I am going to Jerusalem. But I don't know what's going to happen to me there. I have an idea. <laughs> And we get the OGK again. Only God knows what was going to happen to him there. He is under this divine imperative to get to Jerusalem. God is leading him there. Remember, back in chapter 19, he had resolved in the Spirit. Literally, he had been led by the Holy Spirit to go through Macedonia and Achaia and on to Jerusalem. He was led by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, indwelt by the Spirit, literally controlled by the Spirit. In 23, he says, now the Holy Spirit is testifying to me everywhere I go, every city I go to, that prison and afflictions await me. He's basically warned me. And you notice that Paul's not saying, so I'm not going. How many of us would say, well, that doesn't sound like a really good plan. I'm gonna make another plan. Paul says, no, the Holy Spirit's testifying to me. He's being warned about it, and he's going there because he's led by the Spirit. Next chapter, uh, Judean prophet Agabus warns Paul, you're going to be bound and arrested if you go to Jerusalem. Evidently, the Spirit of God spoke through prophets in Corinth and Troas and Philippi and elsewhere as, as well to, to warn Paul because he says, I, the Holy Spirit testifies me, to me in every city. And then he says something that we should all, all just focus in like a laser beam on. Verse 24, look at verse 24. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. A lot different from the way that we view our lives, right? We think our lives are very valuable to us. We fight tooth and nail for every scrap of rights that we think we deserve, and we are very precious to ourselves, are we not? But Paul was willing to surrender his liberty and even his life for the sake of the gospel. See, self-preservation was not Paul's style. It's our style. It wasn't his. He says, I want to finish my course. I want to fulfill my ministry. I want to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what I'm all about. I'm, he's, he's running the race. Marked out for him. He's bearing witness to God's free grace in Christ. And there's a reason. Why Paul could say, I do not account my life as any value to me. I don't account my life as precious to me. There's a reason why he could say this. It's because Jesus was his treasure. 
Jesus was precious to him. I like the way John Owen puts it. I've been reading his book, The Glory of Christ, a great, a great book, uh, The Glory of Christ by John Owen. He says this, on Christ's glory, I will fix all my thoughts and desires. The more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes, and I will be more and more crucified to this world. It will become to me like something dead and putrid, impossible for me to enjoy. And then in verse 25, Paul drops a bomb. Drops a bomb on these Ephesian elders. He says, you're not going to see me ever again. And then he says in verse 26, and I'm innocent of all your blood. I mean, how about before I went on sabbatical this summer, I said, by the way, I'm going to be gone for six weeks and I'm innocent of all your blood. You're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what does Paul mean? He's innocent of the blood of all. Where's he going with this? Those words are echoing the image of the watchman in Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 1 and following. Listen to these words. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people. Say to them, if I bring the sword upon a land and the people take a man from among them and make him their watchman, if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, if the watchman warns the people, and the people hear the sound of the trumpet and do not take warning, and the sword comes and takes them away, their blood is on their own heads. Because they heard the trumpet and didn't take warning, their blood is on themselves. But... If the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and they get consumed by the enemy, then the watchman will be at fault. That, that God will require at the watchman's hand the blood of the people. Ezekiel goes on, Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. When Paul says, I am innocent of the blood of all of you, he's saying, I blew the trumpet. I blew the gospel trumpet. I warned the wicked. I, I spoke to sinners about their sin and God's salvation. I told them the truth. He warned the people of impending judgment. And so must we. We can't just mess around. We're living in, in dire times. So verse 27, then he says, I, again, here's the bookend, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. His teaching and his preaching was dependent on God. It wasn't him making things up. He said, I'm declaring to you, and I'm not afraid to do it, the whole counsel of God, everything that was profitable for you, everything you needed to know about the gospel. He was dependently confident that he had done what he had called to do. Think about your life for a moment. Think about the teaching ministry that God has given you, maybe in your own home or, or with a group of kids or a group of youth or a group of adults. The question for us is this. Are, 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 are you dependent on Jesus in your proclamation of the word of God? Or are you relying upon the flesh? Are you relying upon your own ingenuity, your own wisdom? Are you relying upon your ability to persuade people? 
What did Paul say? Our preaching was not in demonstration of human wisdom, but in the power of God. So we need to serve Jesus with dependent preaching and teaching, not shrinking, not afraid, not holding anything back from declaring and testifying and teaching and preaching and proclaiming the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. And like Paul, publicly and privately in groups and one-on-one. Let's go on in this passage. We're gonna see one more thing, one more focus that Paul was giving to these elders that we need to take heart as well. Verses 28 to 38. Not just a consistent life and ministry, not just dependent preaching and teaching, but a persistent love and care for God's church. A persistent love and care. This is what he's talking about when he says in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves, your own life, and all the flock. Over their life, be shepherds. But he says, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You're in the flock. You're not above the flock. You're not wielding authority over the flock. You are in that flock. And you are an under-shepherd under the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. A flock, by the way, is an Old Testament image of the people of God, the community of God's people. Israel was seen as God's flock, the sheep of his pasture. Uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the prophets, warned the people, warned, warned, warned the shepherds who tended God's people. In fact, Ezekiel 34, the shepherds were so concerned about feeding themselves that the flock was lying uh, unprotected and easy prey for wild animals. You know, if you don't care for the, the, the people that God has entrusted to you by, by giving them the word of God, by, by loving them enough to give them the word of God, they're gonna be tossed to and fro, as Ephesians 4 says, by every wind and wave of doctrine. You're gonna leave them open to false teaching. But I love it in, in Ezekiel 34, God says, you know what? I'm gonna become the shepherd of my sheep. Beautifully expressed in Psalm 23, by the way. The Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. And then you see in the New Testament, John chapter 10, Jesus uh, fulfilling this role as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And then you move on to Peter. Post-resurrection, Jesus is saying to Peter, care for my sheep. He says it three times. Love and care for the flock. By the Holy Spirit, Peter says in 1 Peter 5, shepherd to the elders, shepherd the flock of God among you. Paul says the Holy Spirit made you overseers. The Holy Spirit himself. Paul had appointed these leaders in the Ephesians church, in the church at Ephesus, but the decision was based on a prior appointment made by the Holy Spirit. He says care for that church. Literally shepherd them, pastor them, because he purchased them with his own, what? Blood. How precious is the church to God? How how precious is the church to God? Peter Peter said, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your feudal way of life that you inherited, but with precious blood as from a lamb who is spotless and without blemish. God paid the infinite price. Paul says, you were not not your own. You're bought with a price. So so we are to love the church because Christ loved the church enough to pay for the church's salvation 
with his own blood. That's how precious the church is to God. Paul's getting very serious with them. Look at verse 29. He says, when I leave, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen when I leave. Fierce wolves, savage wolves are going to come in among you, and they they won't spare the flock. They're not going to care about your life. The prophet Ezekiel complained that the rulers of Jerusalem were like wolves tearing their prey. Zephaniah said, you know, woe to Jerusalem's rulers because they are evening wolves leaving nothing till the morning. Ravenous, consuming. Jesus warned his followers, there will be false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Savage wolves. That's a frightening word picture, isn't it? I remember when our youngest, Sophia, was, was young, she was afraid of wolves. And I would say, I'm going to protect you. Daddy is going to protect Sophia from the wolves. And I did. No wolves got her. Wolves. Wolves. He says about these wolves, this plurality of evil that's going to come at them is that from their own selves, verse 30, from from inside the professing church, men will come speaking twisted things and draw the disciples away to themselves, away from Jesus to themselves. They're going to distort the truth. There's going to be a struggle for truth that will assault the church. And in the Ephesians church, it didn't take long for Paul's warning to come true. Within the lifetime to the original apostles, false teachers had invaded the church and were spewing out doctrines of demons. Paul called them, 2 Corinthians 11, false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. They are servants of Satan whose end will be what their actions deserve. Jude called them blemishes in your love feast eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. Verse 31, Paul's warning them, be on the alert. There's the watchman word again. He said, for three years, this is what I did. Night and day, I warned you, I admonished you with tears, with tears. He cared that much about the church. He said in verse 32, I commend you to God and the word of his grace. He's telling them, I'm not gonna see you, but you shouldn't be looking to me. I'm commending you to God and the word of his grace, which is able, the word of God's grace is able to build you up. The Holy Spirit, using the word of God in your life, able to build you up and give you the inheritance as much all those that are sanctified. Let me just say, The word of God is stronger than you think. The church's most powerful weapon against the schemes of the devil, the word of God. Joel Beakey said this, Satan fears no weapon more than the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Puritan John Collins said, all those stones that the Davids of God have flung at the Goliaths of error have been taken out of the brook of scriptures. You gotta let the word permeate your soul, permeate your heart, and affect the way you live in your house, and in your school, and in your business, and in the community, in the marketplace. We live in a world of books, don't we? Books everywhere. You can read all these books and they will inform you. They will either, either, even 
conform you. They might even reform you. But no other book but the Bible can transform you. Henry Smith said we should set the word of God always before us like a rule and believe nothing but that which it teaches, love nothing but that which it prescribes, hate nothing but that which it forbids, and do nothing but that which it commands. As we bring this on to a close, let me point out verse 33. Paul says, I did not covet your silver, your gold, or your clothes. And you're thinking, why would he cover, covet someone's clothes? Because clothes and silver and gold were status symbols. They were the stores of wealth in those days. He says, you know, I, my own hands ministered to my needs and those with me. And then verse 35. I have shown you that by working hard like this, you need to help the weak and do what Jesus said. How many of you ever heard this quote that Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive? Just raise your hand with me. How many of you heard this? Okay, well, 53% of you, wonderful. So now you've all heard it, okay? It, it's more blessed to give than receive. Now you look through all four gospels, you will not find that verse. The only time it's in the Bible is in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. I'm not sure if you knew that or not. He is quoting a saying of Jesus that they knew. He says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It's more blessed to give than receive. The problem was this, and it's, it's, it's our problem as well. He was living in a time of reciprocity, uh, deeply ingrained in the Greco-Roman culture, deeply ingrained in ours, where you had to give equal to what you received. Like, look, someone gives you a gift, and you're thinking, hmm, that was wonderful. Now I need to give them something of equal or greater value, right? Got to give something back. Not a biblical teaching. Paul refutes the idea. He encourages believers to give to those who cannot give in return. He, he's saying, help the weak, those that can't fully support themselves. Be generous with your money and your food and your possessions. That was the mark of the early church, by the way. It should be a mark of ours. Grace Church, um, a generous family. This church is a generous family. So I would say thank you. Uh, all month long, we've been giving to our missionaries, right? We've been giving to bless them. Our missions team will get together another week or so and say, here's what everyone gave. Now let's give it to our missionaries that are, that are in need. We have some missionaries that are in dire need right now. But I will, give, I will commend you even one more. Grace it has a history, a heritage of giving generously. Praise God. Isn't that awesome? By the grace of God. A history of even serving, giving, not just of our, of our, of our treasure, but of our time and our talents and out of the giftedness that God has given us. We need to keep doing that. We're the bride of Christ. We need to keep doing that. Now here's what happened at the very end. Just look at ver the last three verses. Quickly. Verse 36, he says all this, and he kneels down and prays. He kneels down and prays with all of them. There is no substitute for prayer. This was important to him. He's praying with his beloved fellow believers. And verse 37, they're crying. You notice they're hugging. They're kissing him because they're showing love towards this beloved brother. And they're very sorrowful, verse 38, because he said they weren't going to see him again. But the ship is ready to sail from the port, and so they bring him to the ship and say goodbye. And let me just say this. If you think about loving and caring for the church, 
Is there anyone you're weeping with? We're to rejoice with those who rejoice, right? And weep with those who weep. Is there anyone you're close enough to that you can weep together? That you can say, I'm willing to spend and be spent for, for your soul. I'm gonna sacrificially serve and not be self-seeking. I'm gonna focus on loving and caring for the flock and I'm not gonna care about what happens to me. Do you know what happens when we take that first place and we want just whatever is gonna happen to us be the main concern? We are being idolatrous. We are having idolatry of ourselves. But every person who flees self-idolatry in the body of Christ will love the church. We've seen three what I call heart-level focuses of a servant shepherd today. A consistent life and ministry, a dependent preaching and teaching, and a persistent love and care. And this is what the Holy Spirit is doing, is bringing this about. Making tender-hearted servant shepherds who will care for the flock. Whether you're in official church leadership or not, God wants you to serve him with a whole heart. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we are called to be followers of Christ, privileged to be called your own. Lord Jesus, you are the suffering servant. You are the good shepherd. And because of your life in us, we're called to be humble servants and shepherd those you put in our care. Thank you for this example of Paul having a heart just brimful of love for you and your church. Thank you for the call to the task at hand and this beautiful portrait of the servant shepherd's heart. We know it made a difference in the church and we trust you to make a difference in and through us for your glory. We pray in Christ's name.